Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin as this year ends with selected programs from our archives, starting today with events early in the year, then tomorrow stories from the middle of the year, then on Thursday's program from later in the year before special programming on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Let's start with a broadcast of background briefing from January the 17th of 2023, a history of paranoid fantasies and today's rise of fascism led by a reality TV star when we spoke with Jared Yates Sexton, the author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People, and The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. The host of the Muckrake podcast, his latest book is The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia and the Coming Crisis, and we discussed how the current crisis of fascism led by a reality TV star is a part of a long history the book covers in which reality is rejected for paranoid fantasies, ending up with today's apocalyptic mindset that has become Republican orthodoxy. Then we'll go to a broadcast of background briefing from February the 8th, 2023, Rising Tensions with China and a U.S.-China Policy of Self-Harm, which covered tensions rising between the U.S. and China and the absence of a diplomatic dialogue following Secretary of State Blinken's cancellation of talks with Chinese leaders over the balloon incident. We spoke with Ambassador Chas Freeman, a visiting scholar at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs from 1993 to 1994, earning the highest public service awards from the Department of Defense for his role in re-establishing defense and military relations with China. The former Director of Chinese Affairs at the U.S. Department of State, he was the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's path-breaking visit to China in 1972, and we discussed his article at the American Academy of Diplomacy, U.S.-China Policy, A Case of Self-Harm. Then finally, we'll deal with divisions on the home front with background briefing from March the 14th of 2023, Hatred and Divisions Intensifies in the U.S. as the phony war against woke drag queens and trans kids accelerates, which dealt with the slow death of bipartisanship and civility in America's politics and social discourse as hatred and division accelerates, stoked by Fox News and other far-right outlets and led by the divider-in-chief, the head of the Republican Party, Donald Trump, who is running for the presidency again. We discussed the phony war against the woke, drag queens and trans kids with Ian Haney-Lopez, a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley an incisive voice on white identity since the publication of his path-breaking book, White by Law. He remains at the forefront of conversations about race in modern America. A former professor at Yale and Harvard Law Schools, he's the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. We discussed who benefits from having Americans at war with each other and how much the emboldened far right is pushing the country towards fascism. And before we begin, as the year rapidly comes to a close, many are looking for tax deductions. So I hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate 
or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Jared Yates Sexton, the author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People, and The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. He's the host of the Muckrake podcast, and his latest book just out is The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jared Yates Sexton. Thank you so much for having me. Always a joy. Well, thank you, Jared. And of course, you've got a, an inkling of the crisis to come in terms of an extraordinary case out of Albuquerque, New Mexico, where a convicted felon who'd spent almost seven years in jail on 19 felony counts nevertheless was able to run as a Republican for the state legislature. He lost soundly, but then borrowing from Trump stopped the steal. He believed that he had won and the election had been rigged against him, and he hired four people to go and shoot up the homes of Democratic lawmakers, including those that had won, and he's now been uh, caught and in jail, and uh, I I don't know that they caught all of them, but caught some of them. But that's an example, is it not, of Trump's sort of fictional obsession with not being a loser has metastasized into a real-world event. I mean, he shot, this guy shot into houses where young children were asleep and the bullets missed them barely. So is this a portent of things to come? Unfortunately, it is. Um, What we're dealing with right now is a crisis on many levels. And part of it is in a a crisis in liberal democracy. Um, Whether or not we're going to have elections, whether or not we're going to be able to agree on who won those elections and who lost those elections. And by the way, it, it, it isn't a coincidence that people like Donald Trump and the people who fund him and work for him and, and, and work through him have intentionally muddied the waters on what we can trust through elections, whether or not we can trust uh, fellow citizens at all, or whether or not all of this has been rigged through conspiracies in order to hurt people and or carry out you know, these sinister plots. Um, you really can't put that back in the box, you know, once it's been opened, like eventually that, that, that gets worse over time. You, you watch it escalate as people lose faith in these institutions and they lose faith in these processes. And eventually we reach the point where unfortunately this type of violence becomes commonplace and you start to see open society start to close off uh, piece by piece. Well, it's extraordinary to think that there's a fascist movement on the rise in this country led by a reality TV star, but it is it is real. And what is even more frightening is that his, the apprentice, if you will, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, may prove to be even more of an effective fascist. I mean, he's attacking the very foundation of the multicultural America by labeling anybody that doesn't agree with him that's black, Latino, liberal, gay, whatever, as being woke which, of course, is a racist code word. So, again, it feels like out of the frying pan into the fire. You go from a crazy and reckless fascist to a more disciplined one. 
Yeah. And this is one of the things I, I always like to say, you know, Donald Trump was not the disease. He's a symptom. And, a lo- you know, a lot of what Trump did was expose institutional rot to expose that a lot of the guardrails people thought were there simply didn't exist. Um, he made it possible for a lot of very, very wealthy people who hate democracy to begin attacking parts of democracy that in the past they had been too afraid or, or didn't believe that they could get to. Now we've reached this point where we're supposed to believe this fiction that all of this was caused by Trump. Um, You know, everything from uh, this radicalization to January 6th, when in fact it's, it's these wealthy benefactors behind him. It's your co- your Cokeses, your uh, your Devosses, your Bradleys, these right wing billionaires who have been paying for this for decades now. And you look at somebody like Ron DeSantis, and I got to tell you, Ian, I'm having conversations with so-called liberals, never Trumpers, um, who are talking themselves into Ron DeSantis because they believe he's serious or maybe that he isn't as dangerous as Donald Trump because he doesn't have that buffoonish cartoonishness to him. Um, we are entering into a period where that sort of more straight-laced fascism is going to gain power, particularly as the material conditions that created this in the first place aren't being addressed. And that's the whole point, is that something does have to change. We are at a crossroads, and things could get better. We could actually shore this thing up. But as long as we continue to pretend like it's just going to go away, it is going to get worse. Well, obviously, the plutocrats that you mentioned, these right-wing plutocrats, through a lobbyist, uh, Leonard Leo, of the Federalist Society, they were able to literally buy the Supreme Court. And their terrible ideas, which they could never sell politically, because nobody wants this wealth inequality, that nobody wants the waters and air in the country polluted just so that people can plunder and get richer and richer. But they've managed so far to capture the Supreme Court. So do you think that they can also capture the legislature as well? Well, I mean, they've captured so many layers of the legislature. And and one of the problems in this country has been that so much of this has happened while dark money and, and these oligarchical powers, they've been spreading their finances around. You know, um, we, we are now live in this era of dark money in which our government has been co-opted. The federal government has been largely kneecapped and hamstrung to the point where we now see states at, with, with like people like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott as sort of being the arbiters of power at this point. So we've reached this point where we have so-called red states and blue states. In red states, women, of course, aren't allowed autonomy over their own bodies. Uh, We're seeing gerrymandering that's going to lead to voting rights losses. We're we're looking at a uh, reestablishment, more or less, of apartheid politics. And we have a lot of blue states that feel like away from that. And as a result, it's not necessarily their concern. We're seeing the end of sort of a federal politics, and we're starting to see this balkanization take place. And you're exactly right. Leonard Leo and people like him are not household names, and yet they have become some of the most consequential power players in modern history. They've captured the Supreme Court. They've captured large parts of the legislature already. The states are being divvied up by them using conspiracy theories that are weaponized to take over everything from your local school board to your state legislature. Um, This stuff is gaining traction in a hurry. That's the whole point is a lot of it is very quiet. You know, it's not the splashy Donald Trump, you know, spectacle. 
And because it's very quiet and because it's not gaining a lot of uh, uh, attention or traction on our media, um, it's sort of flying under the radar. And, and honestly, they, they are getting a lot of these institutions and a lot of liberal democracy in checkmate. So just to touch on your book, The Midnight Kingdom, the new book that you have out, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia and the Coming Crisis, Jared Yates Sexton, the book begins with the Roman Empire, but it makes it clear that the modern world we're in is at a crossroads and that the historic inequality is such that, I mean, let me just read a, a little bit from the new report from Oxfam that finds the richest 1% of people amassed almost two-thirds of the new wealth created in the past two years globally. So a total of $42 trillion in new wealth was created in 2020, with $26 trillion or 63% of that being amassed by the top 1% of the ultra-rich, according to this report. And of course, today, the Davos meeting in Switzerland where the, the super-rich sit in hot tubs drinking champagne, wringing their hands about the fate of the world, is beginning. So how much do you think this is the central problem? That's everything. I mean, one of the one of the reasons that we're in this situation in the first place is because what what used to be called the New Deal consensus. Of course, this is uh, you know everything from the 30s on. The idea was that the government should be investing in social projects, that you know people should be working, that we should have things like social security and health care and Medicare. Um, and eventually in the 1970s and 1980s, this new thing took place, neoliberalism, the idea that the government should not be investing in those things, that the only thing the government should do is to protect the free markets and to make sure that the wealthy continue to accrue wealth. Um, trillions of dollars were redistributed from the working and middle class, and that creates a problem. We have completely rigged this world to the benefit and whims of the wealthy. This is how you go from the 1980s where millionaires are flying private planes to where now you have Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos who have personal space agencies. And when you take all that wealth and you redistribute it, eventually the system stops working. That's where we're at now, is that the inherent uh, contradictions of this system are becoming apparent. The only way that this can get better is if we go ahead and make sure that it becomes more equal and so the system works, or you start bringing in elements of fascism. And fascism has always been about squaring the circle of capitalism, making sure people still go to work, making sure that all these exploitative systems continue to hum along. Those are the two options. That's the crossroads that we're at. Those are the two paths that we're taking a look at. And it's either going to make our lives better, or we are going to enter into uh, what, what I believe is an authoritarian nightmare. So let's talk a little bit about your background in, in the context of what happened on January the 6th with this, of course, it was a coalition of anti-government, you know, neo-Confederates, Christian nationalists, and you grew up in an apocalyptic Christian household. And of course, you know, the apocalyptic mindset has now become a part of Republican orthodoxy. And it centers on the Book of Revelation, but a completely misinterpretation of the book of Revelation, but nevertheless passionately felt, in other words, the world has to end in burning flesh. You and I will die in the lake of fire while the good Christians are raptured up to heaven. It's spiritual pornography. I'm astounded that it got as far as it did. It's so sick in every sense that people would wish this upon their fellows citizens, let alone their fellow Christians. 
So how did it happen? What is the attraction to this notion that the end of the world is nigh? Well, one of the things that I found researching the Midnight Kingdom was how the strains of apocalypticism have changed the world. You know, what it does is it provides a convenient story, which is what all these conspiracy theories and ideologies do. Basically, it, it creates an out for people to say, you know, what I'm about to do to other people, whether it's hurting them, taking away their rights, oppressing them, there is a reason I'm doing it, not because I want power, because I want to be uh, you know, more influential or I want more wealth. I'm doing it because I'm trying to save the world. It makes me a hero. It makes me a savior. As a result, I can do anything to anybody because I'm doing it for the right reasons. And apocalypticism is an incredible mindset, right? I have to do really terrible things, things that are almost just completely unthinkable, but the, st the stakes are so bad that that means I can imprison my enemies. That means I can carry out genocides. I can wage world wars simply because I am trying to stave off a disaster that I promise you is coming. And that apocalypticism, when it's paired with power as it is now, it becomes just outright dangerous. And that is, by the way, the basis of fascism. It's the basis of here is a larger spiritual ideology that gets merged in with these power components that eventually goes ahead and makes everything from genocide to world war to, to terrible, terrible actions uh, completely legitimized. So can this be in our kind of political or social DNA? Can this kind of religious fervor and apocalyptic paranoia be passed on through the generations? Because after all, the people who originally settled in the United States on Plymouth Rock, you know, they were religious fanatics. They were kicked out of England. They went to the Netherlands and then they were kicked out of the Netherlands. They came back to England and people said, please go away. And they put them on boats and they ended up here in the United States and became the, the first settlers. So <laughs> I was born in Australia, so I'm a descendant from convicts. But I'm not sure that being a descendant from convicts is worse than being a descendant from religious fanatics. Yeah. And, and you know, that's one of the things that I wanted to, to talk about in this book is everybody wants to pretend like all of this is unprecedented, that we've never seen it before. America was built on paranoia. Everything from the pilgrims, you know, you look at the American Revolution. It was based on conspiracy theories. The idea that England was going to take Native Americans and the slave population and turn them against us. And as a result, we had to fight this revolutionary war. You know, this idea of how about uh, the founders were supposed to rule the country. You get to the election of 1800. This is, you know, of course, the re-election campaign of John Adams. What does he do? He calls Thomas Jefferson a uh, the head of a Jacobin, uh, you know, Freemason conspiracy, Illuminati conspiracy to destroy Christianity. Like this is deep, deep in the American DNA, and it has been used to carry out everything from the genocide of the Native Americans to wars and exploitation. This is not unprecedented. We can look at history and we can learn from it and we can we can correct these mistakes that we've made. But continuing to peddle these mythologies and fake stories about American exceptionalism and the like, it only makes the problem worse. But in the last few minutes, Jared, let's talk about how this situation may is not terminal and it could be turned around and how we're at a moment where the midterms turned out better than expected. The election deniers weren't able to take over the electoral machinery of the country and turn the country into a one-party state uh, along the lines of their hero, 
Viktor Orban in Hungary. Bolsonaro got booted out of Brazil. The Ukrainians are resisting the Russian fascists who are literally murdering them and blowing up their buildings and determined to wipe them off the face of the earth, although there may be another spring offensive that could be more punishing. It's a horrible situation, but at least it's clear who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. China recently was challenged by its own people, even though it's a ubiquitous surveillance state with massive police powers. And look at these brave young women in um, Iran that maybe could topple this hideous theocracy. So there are some bright spots out there. Yes, absolutely. And I remain optimistic. I really, truly think that we're going to have a better future and that we're going to fight for uh, uh, democratic progress. And one of the reasons I believe that is History tells us that humanity is just a remarkable species. We do some really awful things, but we're always striving for more freedom and more rights and and, and a better future. Um, I think we're going to turn this thing around. And all of the the examples you just cited, they they speak to me. You know, you look at Iran, the idea that 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 regime could be toppled. You look at China, they have all the technology in the world, like trying to keep people oppressed. I think eventually we're going to get this thing figured out. I think it's going to take people's movements, democratic movements, and I think eventually we're going to push back. But I do want to caution people. It's not going to happen because, you know, a Robert Mueller or a James Comey, you know, swoops in on a white horse and sets things right. We have to stop looking for saviors and messiahs. We have to get involved in democracy. It's not enough to simply vote every two to four years. We have to start building communities. We have to start building trust and we have to start pushing back. Well, indeed, you know, Obama, who was the man on the white horse, he himself encouraged his voters not to go home after election days. And he said, it's not, yes, I can, but it's, yes, we can. And that seems to be lost. So the, we have to rise up. Is that your message in a nutshell? Absolutely. And, you know, the messages that we've received for decades now is don't worry about government. You know, the experts and the, 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 the political class have this taking control. Just go out and buy things. Enjoy yourself. Watch your programs, you know. And, and what we've seen is the decline of civic engagement. But I think that's coming back. I think we're starting to rely on one another again. We're starting to get involved in local politics and regional politics. We have to get into the fight. We cannot allow a government that's been bought off by the wealthy to continue misrepresenting us. But I am seeing a change there. I think there's a sea change coming. So, Jared Yates, Sexton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Ian, a pleasure always. And again, I've been speaking with Jared Yates Sexton, the author of American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People, and The People Are Going to Rise Up Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, as well as three collections of fiction. He's the host of the Muckrake podcast, and his latest book just out is The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a broadcast of background briefing from February the 8th, 2023, Rising Tensions with China and a U.S.-China Policy of Self-Harm. At least it's not the end of the
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ambassador Chaz Freeman, a visiting scholar at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs from 1993 to 1994, earning the highest public service awards of the Department of Defense for his roles in designating a NATO-centered post-Cold War European security system and in re-establishing defense and military relations with China. He has also served as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia and as Deputy Chief of Mission and Charge d'Affaires in the American embassies in both Bangkok and Beijing, the former Director for Chinese Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. He was the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's path-breaking visit to China in 1972, and he has an article at the American Academy of Diplomacy, U.S.-China Policy, A Case of Self-Harm. Welcome to Background Briefing. Ambassador Chaz Freeman. Glad to be back. Well, thanks for joining us. And the president in his State of the Union last night said, we seek competition, not conflict with China. However, Chinese foreign ministry spokespeople are quite angry and they felt that China was smeared in this speech. What was your reaction? Well, I think competition is, in fact, a euphemism for um, something more than rivalry and adversarial antagonism. Uh, that colors the entire relationship and makes it very difficult for the two sides to talk to each other. Well, what your sense is that the relationship is spiraling into a dangerous territory, just to sort of paraphrase what you spoke to the American Academy of Diplomacy on Tuesday. Uh, yes, there's been a, a, a constant and very dangerous deterioration in the relationship that results from many factors. Um, if you read the American press, you would imagine it was all uh, China's fault. And indeed, the Chinese have uh, been much more assertive and uh, reactive to events than uh, in, now than they were in the past. Uh, but the basic problem is that the understandings that uh, enabled the relationship to flourish 50 years, uh, that enabled the Taiwan issue to be set aside uh, by the Chinese as something non-urgent that they could deal with in due course in, um, in crafting a peaceful resolution. All these understandings have decayed or been set aside, uh, and we're now left with a purely military confrontation. And this is the cause of the hostility. And does the ascendancy of Xi Jinping have anything to do with this? I mean, who who's largely driving what you describe as an increasingly ruinous policy. Is it the new leadership, the more bellicose nationalistic leadership, or is it the American military-industrial complex looking for a new enemy? Um, I think the new leadership in China uh, reflects the fact that China now has the ability to punch back. Uh, for many years, it was weak and vulnerable. It lacked wealth and power. Um, and therefore, it was on a, in a very passive, defensive mode. That is no longer the case. If uh, a country insults the Chinese, if, uh, if uh, it appears to menace China, China will take counteraction. So that is indeed part of it. Another part of it is, as you suggested, um, that China has become the cure to what I call enemy deprivation syndrome, which is the... Uh, confusion you feel when you've lost your enemy. 
Um, we lost our enemy about 30 years ago when the Soviet Union uh, irresponsibly collapsed and uh, left us uh, with no clear foe to concentrate on. Uh, China has emerged uh, after, a mo after a couple of uh, uh, decades of uh, focus on Islamist terrorists as the enemy of choice. After all, uh, China is a very now a very scientifically and technologically advanced society, uh, and uh, it's the kind of society you might want to use an F-22 against, whereas uh, bearded men in caves in Waziristan are unreachable by high-tech weaponry like that. So China is, uh, yes, the enemy of choice. But if there were a military confrontation, it would seem to me that China could do massive damage to the U.S. fleets and military deployed in the neighborhood now where we've made a deal with, with the Philippines. Space is not bases. I'm not sure what that means. But has anybody really gamed out what a conventional war would would be like if the U.S. and China came to clash over Taiwan? There have been many, many war games, um, both classified and unclassified. Um, they tend to show uh, some uh, uh, consistent results. First, uh, Taiwan's democracy and prosperity are utterly destroyed. Uh, second, uh, both the United States and China suffer massive losses at sea, uh, and there is often the game results in nuclear ex escalation. Um, the, uh, there is one game that was recently played which suggested that China could not yet take Taiwan, uh, but many others have suggested it could. Uh, so war is a gamble. Uh, you cannot tell how it will turn out. The enemy gets a vote and you don't know uh, how much of a vote that is until you join the battle. So the one thing we can say is that we ought to be doing everything possible to avoid a war and uh, learning the answer to the question you raised, whether China or the United States would, uh, would prevail. I want to say a few other things, and that is that uh, when we fought the Chinese in Korea, uh, they were just out of a civil war. Uh, they were very backward, uh, and yet they gave a good account of themselves. Um, and they did that because they believed in their cause, which in that case was preserving a buffer state between U.S. forces in South Korea and themselves. In the, in the intervening 70 years, um, China has changed dramatically. It now wields weapons against which we have no defense. These include uh, hypersonic uh, missiles of various sorts. It uh, include a, a ballistic missile system that is terminally guided and can therefore strike an aircraft carrier 1,000 miles away from the coast of China. Uh, they include rail guns on Chinese naval vessels, which uh, uh, we tried to develop and deploy but were unable to do. Uh, they include air-to-air uh, -air missiles, which outrange ours. Um, by a, a margin, and, um, uh, and we are unlikely to know everything we should know 
about what Chinese capabilities are. So if we do get into a war, there is a fair chance that we're going to get a nasty surprise. Um, if we do get into a war, there is a certainty that we are going to lose the greater part of our naval fleet uh, and a good, good chunk of our air force. Well, how would you not, though, in a war, how would it not extend, for example, to a war in the Korean Peninsula and also bringing in uh, Japan? Well, as far as Korea is concerned, um, South Korea has absolutely no interest in getting involved in a U.S.-China war. There is a danger that with the U.S. focused on China, North Korea might see an opportunity to pounce on the South. Uh, but the South is well able to take care of itself, which is why some of us have long questioned why we need the force level in South Korea that we currently have. Uh, South Koreans are a formidable fighting force. Um, as far as Japan is concerned, um, Japan has a major strategic interest in the status of Taiwan. Uh, it's historically been the platform from which Europeans attacked Japan. The Dutch coming north from uh, their, from their uh, holdings in Taiwan to blast their way into treaty ports in Japan way back when. It's also been the jumping off point for Japanese forces. Uh, it, they attacked the Philippines, Hong Kong, and Southeast Asia in 1941 from Taiwan. So it's strategically important, but it's very important to understand that neither Japan nor any other country, not one, has signed on to definitely come to our aid and to join us in a war with China. Everybody wants no war with China, and that is why the cancellation of the Blinken visit to Beijing is so tragic, uh, because without the kind of communication he might have begun, we cannot manage the relationship. And that's what the world wants us to do. They don't want us to go to war with China. They want us to manage it, manage our relationship in such a way that they can benefit from continued peace and greater prosperity. So the trigger, of course, for Blinken canceling the visit was this balloon, which was certainly overplayed by the media here. But what's your understanding of who authorized it on the Chinese side? Was it in any way a provocation in order to have the result, which, which is what happened, the cancellation of this diplomatic mission? Well, I don't know. I, I believe it probably was the uh, Chinese uh, Meteorological Agency, which is the Weather Bureau. Uh, I wouldn't doubt for a minute that other agencies in China, including the military, might have put instruments onto it uh, to collect things beyond uh, information about the weather. Um, but what I do, so I don't really know, I do know one thing, and that is it was not deliberate. Um, and uh, if you may recall, I'm speaking to you from uh, New England. Uh, we just had a polar vortex. Uh, this was a shift in the Gulf, in the jet stream that propelled the balloon with 275 mile per hour winds south uh, and ended up over uh, Idaho and Montana. Um, and uh, there was no way that anyone could foresee this. And even if the balloon had uh, propellers of some sort, there's no way that they could have resisted a wind of this force. 
So I think this was a surprise not only to our, our own military, who said so, but to the Chinese as well. Um, now, the Chinese should have uh, picked up the phone and told us that they'd lost control of their balloon and it was headed toward us. Uh, but this goes back to the, the fact that we're not communicating effectively anymore. Uh, that kind of, kind of call might have happened once. Um, it's unlikely when we're uh, at daggers drawn. Well, it's certainly not helpful when a U.S. general recently made the statement that a war with China in a couple of years was possible, if not inevitable. I mean, he hasn't been disciplined, has he? Not to my knowledge, but I would say there's a great problem now with message discipline in Washington. Uh, the military seem more and more inclined to offer policy uh, 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 recommendations and to make predictions, which it's really not their province to make in public. Um, and so uh, I think the Biden administration needs to have a good hard look at civilian control of the military. So China's success, which is extraordinary economically, and even though they've built up their military enormously, and you mentioned the weapon systems they have that could devastate the, the U.S. Navy and the Air Force if there were to be a war. And nowadays we have a completely different doctrine from the Cold War. The mutually assured destruction doctrine no longer applies. In Ukraine, for example, where Putin is engaged in a conventional war using the threat of nuclear war as a, as a kind of shield. So it's not inevitable that nuclear weapons could be used, but just what you described in terms of what the conventional weapons they have are extraordinary and devastating. But it's still, it's only about 2% of their GDP that they're spending on the military compared to what we are spending. And now, of course, there are calls to spend more. And that's the only thing that uh, the Democrats and the, the Republicans agree on, this military Keynesianism of the defense budget. But to explain or to understand China's rise and success has it something to do with the fact that they have planning? You know, everything is so short-sighted and short-term here in the United States, both in, in the business world and in the political world. And my understanding of Chinese leadership and the top cadres is they're, they're largely engineers, whereas our political leadership is largely populated by lawyers. And engineers solve problems and lawyers create problems. Well, I suppose that's true. Um... It's certainly the case that the Chinese leadership tends to be largely drawn uh, from the ranks of people, technocrats, really, people who are competent engineers, scientists, mathematicians, and the like. Xi Jinping, by the way, although he has a degree from Tsinghua, the premier engineering school in China, China's MIT, if you will, um, uh, it took a PhD in ideology, so he is an exception. Uh, but, um, yes, uh, the Chinese have very successfully uh, developed a form of industrial policy uh, that uh, we used to have. You know, the, the railroads were built as a result of uh, benefits that the federal government conferred on, um, on the railroads. Uh, uh, the aerospace industry was built because the post office um, issued an airmail stamp before there were planes to fly mail and thereby set off a race to provide 
uh, airmail service, um, the DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, has been a major force in the planning and development of, of new technology in the U.S. China's developed something a little more, a little different and perhaps more effective than that. Essentially, uh, they issue an order that says uh, to the banks, um, you should give preferential lending to projects which have the following characteristics. And then, but they don't tell anybody how to develop those projects. They basically incentivize the private sector and state enterprises, which are profit-seeking, just like the private sector, to come forward with ideas and and to get money uh, to implement them. So they are following very much uh, the model that uh, Deng Xiaoping once uh, described as crossing the river by feeling the stones. Um, they put something valuable on the other side of the river and wait for people to come and get it. And this uh, mobilization strategy, if you will, for, uh, for industrial development um, is now being applied in the Belt and Road Initiative throughout Eurasia. And it's been formidably successful. So successful that one of the Biden administration's great boasts is that it has adopted industrial policies uh, to uh, rebuild the semiconductor industry in the United States, for example. Which he, of course, mentioned in his State of the Union uh, speech last night. So just in closing then, Ambassador Freeman, obviously, I hope we're not in a Guns of August situation with China, but as we've discussed, there are you know, powerful forces in this country that are searching for an enemy, and they've found one in China, and diplomacy has been set back with the cancellation of Blinken's visit. What do you hope for in terms of a change here, and what could bring about such a change? Well, I hope the Chinese continue to maintain an open door with the light on in the event that we do want to come and try to work out a new modus vivendi. Um, but the obstacles to our doing so are domestic political obstacles. The political polarization that has put our governing institutions into gridlock, um, the uh, difficulty that we have communicating across party lines generally, uh, to the point where families are now divided along uh, party lines. Uh, the development of uh, media, which provide a primitive version of virtual reality, as opposed to a direct view of what's really out there, um, so that we misperceive the world to a great extent, um, since it's oversimplified and and uh, presented in terms that the people who present it hope the average Joe can understand. Um, so I think in order to recover our diplomatic uh, skill, repair our relationships with the many countries where we now have difficult relations, including China, um, especially China, perhaps, uh, we need to get our own house in order. Um, and the question whether we can do that is something that only the American people can answer. Uh, we have domestic problems that are acute. Uh, we don't agree 
about our past or our future anymore, and we have different perceptions of the present. We need to reforge some sort of national unity and some sort of, of common purpose, and we need desperately to engage in domestic reform. And the last thing we need is a war with China. It would be devastating to us, to the Chinese, and possibly to the Japanese if they got it dragged in, uh, and it would certainly be fatal to Taiwan. Well, Ambassador Freeman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I'm speaking with Ambassador Chas Freeman, who's a visiting scholar at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He was Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, earning the highest public service awards of the Department of Defense for his roles in designating a NATO-centered post-Cold War European security system and in re-establishing defense and military relations with China. He also served as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia and as Deputy Chief of Mission and Chargé d'Affaires in the American embassies in both Bangkok and Beijing. And he's the former Director of Chinese Affairs at the United States Department of State, and he was the principal American interpreter during President Nixon's path-breaking visit to China in 1972. And he has an article at the American Academy of Diplomacy, U.S.-China Policy, A Case of Self-Harm. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a broadcast of background briefing from March the 14th, 2023. Hatred and division intensifies in the U.S. as the phony war against the woke drag queens and trans kids accelerates. Joining us now is Ian Haney-Lopez, a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, an incisive voice on white identity since the publication of his groundbreaking book, White by Law. He remains at the forefront of conversations about race in modern America, a former professor at Yale and Harvard Law Schools. He's the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ian Haney-Lopez. Thank you so much. Glad to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And in terms of saving America, I have just find it so heartbreaking in a way that so much of America is turning to hatred and division and cruelty towards trans people, you know, gay people that do drag shows, which, are, you know, I mean, there's a show on television, RuPaul, that's amusing. I mean, <laughs> why people are threatened by a bunch of people dressing up as Joan Crawford, I have no idea. But their leader is out there, and he is the most horrible human being. You'd have to scour America to find a worse human being than Donald Trump. He's just a horrible person. He has no friends. He has no empathy. He's cruel. He's hateful. He's stupid. He's a, been a catastrophe as a president. And here he is, the leader of the Republican Party. So is there, is there really hope for America? Uh, where, where are the better angels? And how do you extinguish this, this race towards 
hatred and division? Well, I think the way you frame your question actually is incredibly helpful. You start by saying Americans are are descending into hatred and then segue to identifying Donald Trump as the leader of this movement. And I, I really want to emphasize the connection between those two. I think it's a big mistake to think that Americans are fundamentally a hate-filled people fundamentally a racist people, fundamentally xenophobic or bigoted. I think the reality is otherwise. We're a people that hold to egalitarian ideals, but that also have deeply internalized fears and resentments. And we, for 50 years, have been pushed by a political leadership class funded by dark money billionaires, reactionary billionaires, to stoke the worst impulses in America, to turn to fear and hatred, to turn to culture wars against people of color, against immigrants, against trans people, more recently against wokeism, to turn to these culture war hatreds of each other while the money elite laughs all the way to the bank. And, and I think that, that if we start with that analysis, that the hatred tearing America apart is not reflective of something intrinsically wrong with Americans, but is something that reflects the deep cynicism, the demagoguery, the despicable character of a leadership class and of reactionary billionaires who fund them, then I think, perversely, that is hopeful because the hope resides in all of us recognizing that there's a set of our leaders who intentionally dividing and tearing us apart. And that that means not only as a, as a moral matter, but as a pragmatic matter, we need to build relationships, build humanity, build power across these lines of difference, see our linked fate repudiate these despicable demagogues and build the country that we want for our children and for the lives of everybody in our community. Well, Ian Haney Lopez, in a way, what you've just said is encapsulated by what we're learning from the Dominion voting systems, court filings about Fox News and how it operates. And it, in effect, Rupert Murdoch is at the pinnacle of what you're talking about because they clearly have made it a business decision that telling the truth is bad for business. They're concerned about their stock price more than any kind of sense of social responsibility. And in effect, they are a den of lying liars who lie about a liar. And make millions and billions doing so. I think that's so. So I think there's two lessons from sort of uh, the Dominion voting system lawsuit and all the revelations coming out about Fox. One is that for the life of Fox News under Rupert Murdoch, it has been the leading blade of class warfare waged through culture war politics and racial resentment. And this, this applies to the sort of billionaire owners, but it applies to the millionaire shills like Tucker Carlson, who are on there spewing stuff that they know to be divisive, hate-filled crap, 
but they do so because it's their brand. It's how they make money. It's how they satisfy their audience and their and their advertisers. All right. So so this goes back to this. These are really despicable people who, in pursuit of their own material interests, in pursuit of their own power, and here's what makes them despicable: because we we pursue our interests, we try and make money, but do we do so by sowing hatred, by telling lies, by intentionally pushing our neighbors and friends to fear and hate each other? That's what's despicable is the strategy. So that's one thing. That's who these people are. But here's the other thing. And in a sense, this is a little more frightening. They too are trapped now, just like the Republican Party, in a call and response with an audience that has been primed to expect and now demands hate-filled conspiracy theories that demonize their fellow Americans. That, I think, is probably the most important lesson coming out of this. Not, not that Fox News and its, and its shills are uh, cynical puppets for the billionaire class. We knew that. What we see now is that Fox News can't get free of Trump because they've succeeded too well and that they themselves are, in a sense, trapped by their success. If they tried to speak reasonably, speak honestly to their base, their base would turn to other people willing to fill that demagogic uh, sphere. And this is exactly what's happened with the Republican Party, the so-called Trumpification of the party. Ron DeSantis is no improvement over Donald Trump. He made the decision when he first began running for office that he would imitate Donald Trump as a strategy for gaining power. Same with J.D. Vance. Same with Josh Hawley. These are despicable folks who are imitating what they know is despicable behavior on the basis of Donald Trump, but they're willing to do so as the route to power, while also recognizing that if they were to stand on their principles, if they were to honor what comes closer to their actual values, they'd lose in a Republican Party. Throw Nikki Haley into that mix, too, right? Like, these are, where are the responsible the formerly moderate Republicans, they're running for their lives because the GOP for 50 years has been engaged in culture war politics and has succeeded in radicalizing its base, the primary voters in the, in the GOP races. And that means that Fox News, like the GOP, they've lost control of the monster they've unleashed. So can they rewrite history, though, with over 40,000 hours of internal capital footage uh, from the January 6th uh, riot that Kevin McCarthy gave to Tucker Carlson. There's a huge effort underway and now and on the House you've got hearings chaired by Loudermilk, who was one of the congressmen that led the insurrectionists on the tour the day before on January the 5th. He's here having a hearing and Marjorie Taylor Greene She's going to be visiting the insurrectionists that are in prison. I mean, is it possible? We all saw what happened on January the 6th, but they're going to try and gaslight us and rewrite history, all to serve Donald Trump's 
narrative? Can it work? Sure. That's one of the frightening lessons, not just of our era, but of the 1930s. We learned in the 1930s that political propaganda spread through means of mass communication is incredibly dangerous in any sort of a liberal political system. It's not a question of facts. People struggle with facts, honestly. People connect with stories. And those stories can sometimes be, well, those stories are the frames they use to interpret facts. And those stories can sometimes be utterly, utterly cynically false. That's what we mean by propaganda. It's these alternate stories that are pushed onto the people um, by these particular interests, by political elites, by corporations. You push propaganda and then that gives people a story through which they interpret events in ways that can run directly contrary to reality. The thing we know about propaganda is it works especially well with mass means of communication. And if that were true in the 1930s, it's on hyperdrive in the 2020s because now it's not just radio, it's not just TV, it's social media, and even more than social media, it's the mass data algorithms that collect information about people and then especially target people with conspiracy theories and lies and fears specifically geared to outrage those individuals, right? This is the danger we face. Now, I think two things are, are true here. One is the best antidote to bad speech is more speech. We, we, we need Democrats holding he hearings. We need radio programs like this saying, this is what's happening. We need to push back. That is true. And it is also true that you need effective, robust government regulation of mass media because mass media is so specially dangerous. And we had that in the 1930s, having learned the lesson of the success of Nazi propaganda, having seen some of the dangers of mass populism in the United States over radio, we as a country adopted policies that required fairness in news and for public broadcasting. The Ronald Reagan administration did away with those fairness requirements, and it's precisely because they did away with those fairness requirements that you can have the outrageous behavior of Fox News. And the only check we have on Fox News is not government regulators saying, hey, you can't consistently lie to your audience. I mean, think about the think about the irony of the situation. It's this private company, Dominion Voting System, that has to launch a private lawsuit and perhaps through a libel law, we'll be able to rein in Fox News. But nobody's saying, where's government? Why isn't government regulating these folks? They're so dangerous. They're knowingly lying to the American public while wrapping themselves in the mantle of fair and balanced. Government should be regulating the heck out of these people. But it's not because in the Reagan administration, that political party, that political impulse got rid of the fairness doctrine in mass media. 
yes, we need more speech. We need to respond to this sort of dangerous and divisive baloney. But we also need government to get serious. That is to say the Democratic Party to get serious about re-regulating mass media, including social media and big data. What's the connection then between what we're talking about, Ian Hanny Lopez, and the emergence of overt fascism in the United States? Just yesterday, over the weekend, in fact, in a small town in Ohio, there were demonstrations against drag shows. And these Nazis showed up. They were in Nazi uniforms, having Nazi flags. They had all wearing red jackets, and they were doing the Nazi salute and shouting in unison, Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, and then they were also chanting, Stop Weimar, Stop Weimar, meaning the Weimar Republic that preceded uh, the Nazi takeover, which they believe is we're in the Weimar now, that Joe Biden is the, the head of the Weimar Republic. I mean, I know it's just a small group in, o in Ohio, but there's so much manifesting, and particularly in this new radical right-wing house. I mean, they had a hearing yesterday on the origins of COVID, and they they had an expert witness the Republicans brought forth, this guy, Nicholas Wade, who wrote a book on the biology of race that was completely racist and condemned by all of his peers, many of whom felt that they had been misquoted in his book. So there's something going on. You know, Trump, brought these people out from under a rock with his racist attacks on the Bertha conspiracy, which then enabled, you know, basically gave them a, a free pass to be racist again. And that's what all this anti-wokeism is about. They don't like the idea that you can't use horrible hate speech, but now they've legitimized it. And now you've got a candidate running on anti-wokeness uh, who's probably going to be the Republican nominee, the dreadful little fascist from... Uh, Florida, Ron DeSantis. I've long been one of those scholars who has warned against using inflammatory language like fascism. And yet, I think now in 2023, we need to recover that language and we need to really think through what fascism was, what fascism is, how it arose, how in some countries it came to power, and how in other countries it was defeated. I think the core of fascism is the idea that the country is beset by internal enemies, and that because the country is under threat internally, liberal democracy cannot be trusted that liberal democracy is actually dangerous given the numbers of internal enemies. That's one core part of it. The other core part of it is the idea that the state will organize both society and the marketplace in this vertical hierarchical fashion, and that the state will provide moral instruction on the appropriate way to live your life, and also that the state will organize the appropriate level of relationships between corporations and labor, including unions. 
both of these elements are consolidating right now in the United States. Honestly, I'm less worried about the, you know, Nazi reenactors. I'm more worried about the 60% of Americans who say that to protect their group, they're willing to sacrifice democratic norms. Why are people saying that now? I think because for 50 years, the right has been telling its followers, you're under threat from other Americans. They might be gangbangers, they might be illegal aliens, they might be welfare queens, they might be terrorists, they might be feminists intent on abortion for any reason, they might be gay people, they might be trans people, but the basic message from the right is America is beset by internal enemies who will take power from the true Americans and will destroy this country. And more recently, you've had this development, both in terms of morality in the marketplace, in which portraying themselves as populists, you have Republican leaders like Ron DeSantis and Josh Hawley, the, the uh, Republican majority in Texas, that's going after corporations themselves saying corporations are excessively woke and corporations need to be reined in, that the state should set the limits of appropriate corporate behavior in addition to appropriate behavior of members of our society, that trans people should not be recognized at all, should even be eliminated to use that incredibly frightening term that racial justice should cease to be discussed, except in the most celebratory terms in our schools. This is what we mean when we say there's a dramatic, treacherous, frightening turn towards modern fascism. And now, when we think about where fascism succeeds and where it fails, one of the core insights is that fascism succeeded when the center-right, the center-right failed to stand up to the extreme-right, where the center-right looked at this growing anti-democratic totalitarian politics. And I say totalitarian, not authoritarian, totalitarian. This is the idea that fascism seeks to organize both everybody's individual lives and also the marketplace under the authority of the state. When the center-right looks at that totalitarian far-right and says, well, these people are generating a lot of energy, we could ride their coattails, and up, but yet ultimately control them. And that's what happened in Germany. And what you saw was the far-right very quickly slipping the control of the center-right, winning just barely, and then using their authority through legal means to legally destroy democracy, to legally install fascism. And when I say legally, I don't mean legal in the moral sense. I mean legal in the technical legislative sense, using the very means of legislation and executive power in a liberal country to install fascism. 
when fascism has been stopped, it's because the center right has seen the threat of the extremism on the far right and has made common cause with who they're traditionally uh, see as their opponents. That is, when the corporations make common cause with unions, when uh, conservatives make common cause with liberals and say, the very fate of our countries is hanging by a thread here. We'll go back to disagreeing in a decade or two, but right now we have to join together. Who is the center right in the United States? Right now, it's no longer the Republican Party. As I mentioned earlier, the Republican Party has been almost entirely co-opted with a, a few notable exceptions. The, the Republican Party has been almost entirely dragged to the far right. The center right today is corporate America. And the question that corporate America needs to ask itself, and honestly, the question that all of us in the country need to be asking of corporate America is, do you see the threat that people like Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance, uh, that Ron DeSantis, that Donald Trump pose? You might think, they're going to win elections. I can give them some donations. Maybe I'll have some influence. But if those people come to power in our country, we will descend rapidly into a fascist totalitarian country that regulates, from the point of view of the corporations, the way the marketplace works. Who, who wins and who loses will be decided not by marketplace competition but by who has the favor of the tyrants in power. And from all the rest of our perspective, those folks are incredibly dangerous when they talk about eliminating internal enemies. Because the truth is, the majority of Americans fall on the list of the supposed internal enemies. This is the moment when the responsibility, the fate of the country depends not just on Democrats and unions and churches. It really depends on corporate America seeing clearly the dire threat we're confronting right now. Well, Ian Haney Lopez, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been my pleasure, Ian. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Ian Haney Lopez, who's Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, an incisive voice on white identity since the publication of his groundbreaking book, White by Law. He remains at the forefront of conversations about race in modern America, a former professor at Yale and Harvard Law Schools. He's the author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Been Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh, 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 oh,